Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. Great to be back. Another great day in Edinburgh. When I say a great day, I mean... It's great to be alive, but it is a gray day, another gray Edinburgh day. But they say the weather is meant to improve this week. Not that I can complain. The show has been going great, and it's great to see everybody. Um, fun week, pitch and putt with Jason Byrne. Saw some great shows. Saw a great, sh- saw a great show called A Simple Space, a circus show, uh, a fun masking show called Finding Joy, and... Um, I saw a fantastic show called Career Suicide by Chris Gethard, who is my guest today. Uh, very popular comedian amongst varied groups of people. He's the host of the Chris Gethard Show, which was originally a public access show, but has now been picked up by Fusion in the States. And that was a pretty quirky show and attracted some pretty loyal, die-hard fans. Uh, but uh, in Ireland... Chris was super popular because he's the star of Broad City and uh, was getting recognized all over the place for that. And uh, he had a great time at the Comedy Festival in Dublin. That's where I got to know him. He's also former UCB alumni, uh, part of a sort of a earlier, uh, earlier group from the Upright Citizens Brigade, all of whom have gone on to great success. Uh, and he's part of that improv troupe who... Uh, yeah, I mean, they've hugely respected in the U.S. comedy industry. And he's now uh, in Mike Babiglia's new movie about an improv troupe. Uh, so you can see him in that. And uh, yeah, very cool guy. Great comedian. His show, it was super challenging. It was, it was great. It was dark at times. Helped me to understand depression. Uh, so... That's what we chat about largely in this chat. Uh, I, I actually split the chat. Uh, the earlier part of our chat, I'm leaving for a later time. Uh, we take up this chat now um, talking about how he prefers, not prefers, but he, he thinks he fits well this side of the Atlantic. In Britain, in Ireland, just his style of comedy seems to float nicer here in these waters. Uh Earlier chat uh, was about growing up in New Jersey, which I could kind of identify a lot with uh, growing up in Queens and working class neighborhood, tough guy neighborhood. I'm saving that because Chris challenged me on something. Well, he didn't challenge me, but he asked me to elaborate on something and I sort of balked only because I feel like I've talked about it before and I didn't want to bore the listeners. But afterwards I thought, nah, let me explore that more. Uh, So I'm going to save that possibly as part of a broader bullying episode, episode about bullying. Maybe I'll chat to one or two other people. But what, what myself and Chris were talking about was really interesting. We also talked a little bit about the New York comedy scene, which uh, I'll also save for later. So uh, this chat comes after the niceties of hellos and that, and we'll take it right from Chris talking about being over here and performing 
and then we get right into his show uh which definitely is talks about some tough subjects like depression and suicide and not your usual comedy fair so ladies and gentlemen chris gethard i fit a lot better here than i do in new york trying to go up at some of the clubs in new york like where i'm following like dudes (laughs) or like following like dudes in leather jackets who are like real aggressive and then i get up and i'm trying to tell like an eight minute long story and it makes a lot more sense here especially dublin i found that dublin i was like oh this feels like my this is where i should be all these guys are like the audiences and the other comics it was all like oh we get you and i was like oh this is like the really the first time that i feel like i haven't had to kind of like fight for it this so much. you found the irish audiences got you straight away loved it loved it well really? i think the storytelling there yes yeah, just fits thing. and also i'm so self-deprecating like so many of my jokes are about how i'm just kind of a train wreck and i got the sense that the irish love some self-deprecation sure, in man. a big way yeah, if so you can, if you can articulate self-hatred in a funny oh. way you're gonna find an audience in ireland let me tell you that and i've spent my whole life hating myself so <laughs> yeah, well. I, it's been about 18 months that i haven't hated myself so but now when you were in dublin you were just doing like more like stand-up stuff, 20 right? minute sets yeah 20 minute yeah. sets and it's funny because american comedians always talk about storytelling like we don't have a classification here yeah like in that you tell funny stories on stage you're just as much a stand-up as the guy that's banging out one-liners yeah there seems to be a classification in the united states i think so like i definitely like when i do clubs like the alt rooms in new york and the more like brooklyn shows i don't have any problem there but when i do the clubs because i'll go and do like the stand and they're definitely like oh yeah like you're that's you're the story guy man i can't wait to hear the stories you're the story guy and i'm like okay that's a thing like that's a yeah that's a weird line in the sand there yeah for sure for I'd like sure. to think Ireland mixes it well, though, because I, I, like sometimes, don't get me wrong, though, I think those Brooklyn shows are fine, but I also think that uh, the crowds are like, they're not hand-picked because it's deliberate, but the areas bring certain types of oh, people. So you end up and you're not, you're not learning much about yourself as a comedian. Yeah, but I also think that like in Ireland, it's, it's, it's a more broad base of people that are able yeah. to plug into those stories, yeah. if you get what I mean. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely cool. It was like, it was really exciting. It was cool. So now you're here in Edinburgh. Yeah. And your show is called Career Suicide, which I saw last week. And, you know, it's it's a tough show. Yeah. Like, I found it really funny and really interesting, <laughs> and I love that type of shit. But I was taken aback at times. It's pretty dark. And you start dark. Yeah, I got... Well, I'm trying to fix that, to be honest. Oh, oh yeah, I, I was cool with that. You liked it? Well, I, I mean, I was cool with that. I mean... I feel like I could use a laugh. If I can get an earlier laugh, I'd be pretty, I'd be pretty thrilled with that. Yeah. But it starts dark, yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's a show about depression. Yeah. And yeah. It, it starts early with an attempted suicide. The attempted suicide isn't the end. <laughs> no, that's the, I think the second bit is the me second bit crashing is your... a car on purpose. Yeah. 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 So. It's bit two. Yeah. In an, hour, in an hour plus show. Yeah. I'd like to see that set list. <laughs> yeah, it's what's, pretty. What, what's the headline? What's, what's the index card uh, dot for number one? Number one. Let's see. The index card dot for number one would be. Like sitting in the backyard, sad. <laughs> sitting in the backyard, sad. Number two would be like shrink one, and then the sub cards would be, um, you know, Mexico, uh, parents ride, and then you'd seen all those. But then, yeah, it would be the the third big card would be car crash. Yeah, three yeah. A car yeah. crash. Three would be car crash. Yeah. So I mean. Very important time, like particularly say in Ireland, I don't know, you probably didn't notice, but there's been a huge, uh, you know, just a move towards making people more aware of mental health and the importance of it. And, you know, 
you might have noticed you, you connected well in Ireland. You think, oh, there's a reason for that. But, you know, like it's a big issue in Ireland. You know, like traditionally alcoholism was Irish were famous for alcoholism. But there's a lot of like mental health issues. Yeah. So here you are. Well, those all it. go hand in hand as well. I sure. Think. Plus, you have a society of people that have been put upon for centuries as yeah, well. well. Like all that stuff is hard to prove scientifically. I mean, I actually made a whole series about it. But yeah. It's very hard to gauge why. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, we can look outside right now and see in this Celtic world, there's a lot of rain and gray, gray clouds. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the reason is. Yeah. Uh, it's a good time to be doing a show, but at the same time, not an easy show to do. Like, how do you feel so far about, I mean, the reviews are great. Yeah. I love it. I love that challenge. Thanks, man. I like it. It's hard. Well, it's, it's funny because the way I started doing the show um, was I was opening for Berbiglia back in the States. Safe place. He, well, he's, 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 I mean, he's a, like a champion storyteller. Exactly, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if there's anybody who can like create a, a stage where you're allowed to like try stuff like that. Well, that's, that's the compliment you get. Yeah. It was Birbiglia-esque. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That is, that is, that does get tossed my way. And he and I are, are super tight. So I, I take that as high praise for sure. Well, you're in his new movie, right? I am. Yeah. Just to, just to interrupt our thing with a bit of your own fame. Yeah. He's got a new movie called Don't Think Twice and I'm in it. And it's uh it's about an it's about an, it's improv, about an improv group, group yeah. where one guy is successful and everyone else is sad, which was just to me reliving like two thousand seven <laughs> to two thousand ten. Um, on the sad end for sure. But so you were opening up for I was opening for him for like a year because I, I I switched over from improv to stand up and I was like getting put on all these good shows because all the stand-ups knew me from UCB, but I was like eating shit because I wasn't a stand-up and I knew like I need to pay my dues. So I started doing open mics and bar shows and then I ran into Mike one day and I was like, if I could open for you, I bet I'd learn a lot. And I had to kind of like humble myself because I'd been doing comedy for a long time, but not stand-up. And I just went on the road with him and I was like, I'm just going to soak up everything and just figure out how this works. And it was a smart move. And you know, you're on the road, like you have all these late night drives, especially like out in the Midwest. It's just like yeah, driving. I, mean, I can't imagine the vastness of America. Oh, like, I can't you, imagine. It's like you do a show in Des Moines and then the next one's in Wichita and you're just driving through actual cornfields for hours. You wind up talking about everything. And he had heard me tell some jokes about depression stuff. And he was like, what are the real stories, though? And I told him the car crash story. And he was like, dude, that's hilarious. Tell it on stage. And I was like, you're out of your mind. Like, that's like the darkest thing. I don't even like tell loved ones about that and he was like if you can make that funny he's like that's a funny story man he's like if you can make that funny you got something there and uh i started going on stages in new york and just like trying to tell these stories and just being met with discomfort but then that the way my personality works is i'm like okay it's not working i have to make it like yeah i gotta make it work and um really the only thing i have that story about drinking with the batman mask that was like the only stand-up bit that pre-existed it Everything else was just like get on stage and just eat shit to confusion, to confused audiences. So the people we're talking to, I mean, I don't want you to give away the story. But sure. basically the car crash is essentially a sort of a hidden suicide attempt. Yeah, yeah. I crashed a car knowing that if it looked like a car crash, no one would judge me. And that's like one of the first things I talk about in the show. Yeah. But I think that story actually gets really funny at certain parts. And yeah, that, it's got a great, it's got a proper punchline. It's the got end. some punches. Yeah. So it, that was like the real fight. The real fight was, I, I always wanted to make sure it was comedy first. Like that was my big thing. So I was going to rooms in New York and like New York, like it's an aggressive city. And, uh, you know, it's like at times it can be problematic with how aggressive it gets. But also like, if you're not funny, the crowds aren't going to put up with it. 
So I was like, I'm just going to try to make it funny, make it funny, make it funny. And then when I had enough bits that I felt like were actually funny, started trying to like order them and find some connective tissue to build the show. So it's kind of where it came from was Berbiglia kind of goading me into telling that car crash story on stage. And then when it actually went like halfway decent after a few times, I was like, he's right. There might be something here. And then, you know, you have that thing that I think we all have where it's like, oh, this might be the thing that only I can do. Like, um, there's, a, you know, Maria Bamford goes really hard at depression. I think she's really brilliant. And Marin has talked about it so much. And like, it's that. But I'm like, I think I'm, I think I'm a good storyteller. And I think these stories are maybe like, if I put these on the table. I think, I think maybe I can do it in a way nobody else is. And maybe that'll feel good as an artist and connect with people in a way yeah. that they're not getting elsewhere. And just felt like a good challenge. Well, the two things that I thought watching it were, one, this is helping me to understand depression. Because, I mean, I've had tons of issues and things in my life. But when people talk about depression, I never get it. Now, there's a lot of things you were talking about that I identified with, which, you know, I just thought were really powerful. But the other thing I thought was, fuck, this is great for people that experience this. Yeah. Because it's it's a great way to hear it where it's kind of like, it's been cool. A, it's a laugh. It's fun. Yeah. Makes you feel like there's not, there's not something wrong with you. You know, yeah, like for sure, all those things are really powerful. Yeah. Cause I can imagine like I even, I, this is an honest thought that I had. I, I, on, I, I still thought to myself, does he think that he's <laughs> weak? You know, yeah. like, I, I wondered, does he, like, he's saying all this, but does he still think, like, there's something wrong with him? Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth, honestly. I really go back and forth. Like, there's there's days where I feel like I'm totally, like, have totally come to grips with the fact that I have to deal with this stuff. And, like, there's days where I just want to hide. You know, there's just days where I'm like, ugh, I'm just, like, broken. You know, like, I still, I just still, and I think I'm, like, like based on the fact that I've talked about it and I'm public about it and this show in particular, I feel like I'm probably as empowered as you can be if you're yeah. somebody who's like eating antidepressants every night when every day when you wake up and every night before you go to bed and like I've had some really dark shit, but I, it's really hard. And also like I think about it too. I live in New York. Everybody's in therapy. It's like the most accepted thing in the world there and it's still so hard for me. Like I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, 14 and west texas and have to deal with this stuff or in countries that haven't you know don't have liberal attitudes and have to deal with this stuff and it's like really scary so there's been times it's been it's actually been really cool where like there's been a couple of times where the show is largely bombed but there'll be like half a dozen not people. here in edinburgh though right no edinburgh it's been going well i mean like early on when i was doing it right. figuring it out where it would be met with like a lot of discomfort and silence and then i noticed there'd be like half a dozen people laughing and then after the show, I'd talk to people and realize, like, invariably, those were the people who were, like, as depressed or even more fucked up than I was. They yeah, found it funny. It's liberating. So it felt so good. And then the thing that's felt really great, like, there's two things that jump out to me was, like, one, this couple emailed me and they said they saw the show in Brooklyn. And when they were driving home, they actually pulled their car over because they have a son who's, like, very clear. I think he, they said he was six or seven years old. They said he's very, very clearly, like, he's dealing with some stuff he's dealing with some depression and stuff and mental health stuff and they can tell their son has his stuff and they talked to doctors who'd suggested medication and they really resisted it they were like he's just a kid does he need to be on these pills and then they were like we saw your show and we're like we're at least going to be more open-minded to it like we're going to listen to the doctors and trust them a little more because 
we're like thinking of pills as like, oh, it's like as a defeat, right? It's defeat. And now they're like, maybe it's just medicine. I'm like, that's amazing. And like this girl came up to me once after a show in Brooklyn and she was like shaken up. And she was like, your show was really funny, but, and that, I always like that when they say like, it's really funny, but like to me, I'm okay with that as long as they say it's funny first. But she was like, I used to date this guy and he had really bad depression and I thought he was just kind of a crybaby. She's like, I just thought he was kind of annoying and whiny. And uh, she's like, I watch your show and I feel so bad. Cause she's like, I saw a lot of him in there and I wish I could just like reach out to him and say like, Hey, I'm sorry. I kind of bailed as she's like, I just kind of bailed cause I got annoyed. And I said to her, I was like, first of all, it's really annoying to date somebody with depression. Like women who tried to date me, it, it, I made it difficult. It is annoying. I am whiny. It is tough. Like, But I said to her, I bet if you sent him an email and said what you just said to me, that might mean a lot. And she was like, you think so? And I was like, yeah. And she literally like turned around and just like left. And I was like, that's cool. She like, never got back to you? No, I never heard how it turned out. But I'm like, that's cool. To yeah, like, they're big moments. Yeah, to feel like some people who have maybe been around it are going to take it a little easier on the people in their lives who have it. That to me is like, Oh, thank God. Cause I've always had that in my head of like, I want to write the show. Cause you saw the show. Like I have so much guilt about my mom in particular. Like my parents were together. My parents have been married for 40 years, but like my dad lived for a couple years in Puerto Rico on business by and large. And my mom was just alone when all this shit hit the fan with me. And it was just me and my mom. And it was just like horrible just horrible to put her through that but and, but that's a strong moment in the show oh yeah like, and she's a tough she's a tough broad you know no but what i love about that is like because that's the bit i identified with the most because my thing was like booze and drugs yeah but it's just that moment where you go i've got a fucking problem <laughs> yeah you know i mean in the aa and all that they say like surrender to win but that's like a big surrender moment sneakily done by your ex-girlfriend yeah which forced the issue yeah it's funny if my mother did to my uncle about alcoholism she ratted him out to the fire department and told him she was gonna anyway that's neither here nor there the no but it's good you need that it sometimes forced you and that moment in the bedroom i i felt a huge relief yeah watching the show oh good this huge relief of just like wow that must be fucking amazing to do because so few people well yeah often people never get there and obviously the so. alternative is no show yeah it's death yeah i mean i do think without comedy i would i would i would be dead definitely definitely and uh, without like my mom being strong definitely and like i remember like that's why i'm like if i can make a show that would have helped my parents that's even more important to me than a show that would have helped a kid like me Cause it was like, I remember, like, I remember talking to my dad and my dad's the best. I don't want to like talk bad about my dad, but I remember times where I'd be like such an angry person or just so withdrawn and he'd be like, what's going on? Like snap out of it, you know? And it's like, you can't really say snap out of it. You can't, that can't just be the end of the conversation. Like I get it. Like every kid when he's a teenager, is going to have like these moody times, but like, hit a point where I look back where I'm like, once it's been going on for like 10 years where I'm like flipping out or getting so angry or so sad or like when I get, when I get upset about something, it doesn't really make sense to you. Like at what point do you stop saying like, hey, this doesn't make sense, cut it out. And do you realize something's just wrong? Like something's wrong. But I do think for people of our parents' generation, wasn't really a yeah, thing. They just didn't have the language. They weren't equipped with the. You just drank. You just drank, or, 
also, I think there's something fair to be said of like, they had more immediate problems to deal with and that's fair, but it doesn't mean that my problems aren't real. You know what I mean? Like, like my, my mom's parents were immigrants. Like my mom grew up with nothing, with no, with nothing. They had other stuff to deal with. So depression wasn't where they, there wasn't really a word they said. It wasn't really a thing that seems real to them. But then I look at my mom's family and everybody was drunk and like her, she had uncles dying in their forties from like their, from liver failure. And it's like, well, maybe there was something there. Yeah. Like there was other stuff being covered up for sure. And then I'll never forget this dude. Like when I told my mom I had it, then that is a moment in the show, but there was this conversation. I, so I saw a shrink for the first time and I talk about how it was like the same week that I first told my mom I was fucked up. And the shrink goes, you gotta, you gotta find out if there's any history of this stuff in your family. And I remember being so mad because I sat down with my mom at our kitchen table and I said, you know, like this doctor told me I have to ask. And my mom was like, yep, this aunt has this, this uncle has this. Your grandfather was in a mental hospital for a while. And I was just like, so mad that we hide this stuff because I was like, if I knew any of that, I would have known something was wrong sooner. I would have asked for help sooner. If I knew my grandfather had been in an insane asylum, I would have not, I would have known, I would have known there was a hit thing. It would have been in a weird way. Like it, this was kept as like a dark secret from me, but I bet it would have made me feel, it would have been so much easier to say like, Hey, I'm fucked up. So did you ask your mother? Like, clearly I was an odd kid. Did you ever think of think, did you ever think that I might be like our relatives? It's weird. It's weird. Cause they knew, they knew I was an odd kid. And they, I think they just hoped I was going to grow out of it. And and this is like, I didn't plan on talking about this today, but my mom actually sent me a letter about a year and a half ago. A handwritten letter showed up in the mail, which is like weird. Yeah, like well, you, It's old school, but it's powerful. It's old school. And in the modern day, like as soon as I like, because you know, it's like from my mom, I figure it's like she'll send me stuff stump sometimes. and But I open it up and it's just like, you know, like actual paper with lines on it. And, a written, and before I even read it, I was like, what's this? And she like, cause it's, it's like a couple years ago with my, the show, I do this TV show. Like I started talking about this stuff pretty openly. The Chris Gethard. Yeah. Yeah. Gethard show. That's okay. And she, uh, she sent me this handwritten letter and she was like, you know, I want you to know I'm like really kind of impressed at how you're talking about all this stuff. And she's like, and I see how the kids who watch your show are like, she watches the show sometimes and like sometimes kids will call in and say like, Oh, you talked about this stuff and that really helped me or I'm seeing a shrink for the first time or like, like I told my parents that they need to get over it, whatever, you know? And she's like, I see that you're helping a lot of people and you're talking about this stuff. And she said in it, she goes, I've thought a lot about, she's like, I felt so much guilt. She's like, I can't tell you how much guilt I have felt over the years that I didn't do more to help you and your brother. Like I saw what was going on. I saw you guys had it really hard with the way you were growing up. She's like, and I've always wondered if I should have stepped in and done more. And I've always felt really guilty, but she's like, I see how you've grown up and what you've turned into. And that now you're like kind of fighting back against what that was like. And it's helping all these other people. And she's like, it's made me feel, she's like, you talking about this stuff has made me let a lot of guilt go basically because I feel so bad that I didn't like step in when you were a kid, when I sensed stuff was going on and that you can imagine 
I was just like sitting in silence at my desk, just like, just like folded it up, put it in a drawer and was like, I've only like looked at it a couple of times since. Cause it was like, yeah, that's like crazy. It's crazy for my mom to say that. But it's powerful for her. Oh I mean, my I know God. My mother holds a lot of guilt for what happened to me and being in Ireland on my own. And yeah. she hasn't let that go either. I yeah. don't always let her let it go either. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause I also remember too, like my parents, the way that I finally got them talking about it, because I would see this shrink and they would still, how's it going? Oh, it's going fine. All right. And that's it. That's all they wanted to know. And then I went on the medications. Are you sure you want to go on the medications? I'm like, I think I have to. I really think I have to. And then I started having some weird side effects. So they had to, like, I remember once, like, I used to work at this magazine and I'd make deliveries, deliver boxes and having to call my mom and saying, like, Ma, I'm, I got to pull off the highway and go to sleep. Cause I'm getting so like drowsy from these medications and she's like, okay, just do it. Don't worry about it. I'll call your boss, make up an excuse, whatever, you know? But the way I finally got them talking about it was when I could finally start joking about it. Cause I'd say like, I'd like, when I still lived at home, when I was a kid, I was, there were a couple years when I still lived at home when I was taking the medications and I'd be like, we'd eat dinner and it would be me, my, my, my mom and my dad at the table. And I'd be like, all right, now that I've eaten, they say, don't take my, uh, Pills on a full stomach, but I got to go take the pill or, uh, on an empty stomach. Now that I've eaten, I got to go take these pills because I'm crazy, dad. I'm crazy, mom. And they'd be like, don't say that. You're not crazy. And they'd be like, yes, I am. You got to admit it. I'm crazy. And it was jokes that finally got them to just chill out, just yeah. chill out. And that's why, too, I noticed, like, for some reason, it happened more here. And I'm a New Yorker. Like I said, like, that's it's not a rare thing to meet people in therapy in New York. I would say it's almost more rare to meet somebody who's, like, like pushing back against it in yes. New York. But here, like, I put up a Facebook thing, you know, you try, desperately trying to sell some tickets in Edinburgh. Every comedian is like, I got to get some people yeah. there. So I, like, paid. You pay for your Facebook ad to spread around a little oh, you bit boosted more. boosted it. Boosted it. And you can target that. So I targeted it to Edinburgh. And I feel like every comedian here has a boosted ad I'm up boosting right the shit out of, of it. Of course. <laughs> but it's funny because here, more than anywhere else, like, in, in New York, when I've advertised a show, people don't care. Here, I've gotten a lot of comments on Facebook where people are like, I don't see what's funny about that. You shouldn't be making jokes about that. And I'm like, those are the people I got to figure out how to get them to come most people. Cause they're effectively saying like, you shouldn't be talking about that. It's like, well we should. And if we can't laugh about it, laughter is usually the first thing we do to like pull down some bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's too important. I mean, even from talking to you now, I just think how many families are just sitting there not talking about it. And, the the price is too big. Yeah, it's a big problem in Ireland now. That's why I thought it was so important to talk to you, because suicide rates are very high in Ireland. Yeah, and it's killing me. I just this week got news that this kid who grew up up the block from me blew his brains out. He was older than I was. He's in and he was about forty, forty one years old. Like, growing up, he's just like another kid. Like his mom taught at the Catholic school down the block from us, and like grew yeah. up with him and his sisters. Killed himself. It's so sad. Yeah, a kid I knew too. Just just a couple of weeks ago, hanged himself. And it's nobody talks about it. And you kind of, it's like this, also this weird, sad thing where you can kind of figure out if somebody took their own life because nobody will tell you how they died. Like if somebody died from cancer, some they'll, you'll hear that. Somebody died from a heart attack, you'll hear that. But then there's some people who die. I've, I've noticed this where it'll be like, yeah, that person passed away. Oh, how? And you just don't hear back or you read their obituary and there's just no mention or any of the memorial stuff or you go on their Facebook wall and everybody's saying, I'll miss you. And they don't say it. And then you start to piece together. Oh, they must've, uh, 
it was either heroin or suicide. That's when you know, when no one will say what it was, it's either heroin or suicide. It's one of the things you can't talk about. It's really, really scary. So it's interesting coincidence. The day after I saw your show, I mean, myself and my mother talk about plenty of stuff, and there's some stuff in our family history which I knew about, but it just so happened that uh, my mother's first cousin found a clipping from the Irish newspaper back in uh, in the 20s Whoa. of uh, my great-grandfather's suicide. Really? Yeah. The, Did you know about that? I knew about it. The Glengariff tragedy, the inquest, a sad story. Whoa. And uh, so I was reading it right after seeing your show. And I mean, I'm not going to read bits out to you, but... I want to. You can if you want to. Well, I... Uh, you know, they're basically trying to figure out what happened. It's very interesting because they're, they're trying to figure out what happened and uh, they can't. And obviously the word depression is is not in there. Yeah. So I, I'll read you the last bit. The coroner said he had no hesitation in coming to the conclusion that the man's mind was unhinged when he committed the unfortunate act. Apparently the loss of his wife must have preyed on his mind and it, and it was shown he was in financial straits. So like they're just trying to figure out some reason. Yeah. You know, yeah. which I mean, th- those are two decent reasons. But <laughs> yeah, I thought about you when I saw this. Yeah, I mean, I, I've known about this for a while. I mean, so I, it's sad, but I just thought it was more cool than anything else that I was able to have this bit of my yeah, family's history crazy. in the local paper. But uh, was that like a story that had been passed down through your family already? Uh, well, you know, like Ireland was. There was like Ireland was. Uh, it was just after the War of Independence and. The but wife here's my died. question about an Irish family, because I know Irish Americans need to shut up about being Irish. We're not Irish, but I do feel like in my family, one tradition that re- that's retained is like you go back just a couple generations and the horrible shit is like the stuff we're all laughing about. Yeah. Like I, I feel like in my family, we'd be making jokes about that guy. It would be like a joke that would come up. I don't yeah. know if that's true in your family. I mean, I, I get this is probably just maybe a little too far removed. Yeah. But what I thought was interesting after watching your thing is now at least when people commit suicide, people know. Yeah. It's depression. It's yeah. a condition. Yeah. It doesn't need to happen. Now, of yeah. course, in this case, it's the bloody 20s. Like, it's yeah. never going to be the case. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. But it's true. Aren't you glad that you're part of that process? I am. Like it makes me proud. It's but it's also weird cuz it's like I never really set out for it and I have a real fear of like becoming like 
an advocate or an activist because what I can offer to the world is comedy. And that's like, I'm proud to bring that to the table and be someone speaking about it. But it really all happened by accident. I don't know if you know this. So I do this show. We used to do it on public access television, my talk show. Yes. It's just like dumb show, but it developed this like cult. Like there were very few people that knew about it, but the people that knew about it were like live or die for it, you know, like really loved it. And I got a message one day, like, like social media wise, Tumblr was the big platform that we busted out on initially. Like the whole Tumblr community loved our show. And we got an anonymous message on Tumblr from this guy that was like, you know, you've mentioned you take antidepressants, you mentioned you do therapy on your show. Like, I don't really see a reason to live. I can't really find a reason to live. How did you push through that? And it felt, as soon as I read it, I was like, whoa, this feels serious. You could just like feel it. And I had like mentioned it like jokingly and I'd mentioned it, it would come up and like, I'd talk about it with like no shame, but it was never like a thing that was like the core of who I was as a comedian or a person really. But this guy sent this thing anonymously and I was like freaking out because I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I emailed some of the guys who work on my show with me and one of them was like, we really shouldn't get involved. This is like pretty heavy. But I was just thinking about it. I'm like, what if this kid is like hitting refresh and like this is the last thing like he asked me and if I don't answer, that's it. Like I couldn't get it out of my head. So I wrote this thing that was really long that's kind of become the basis for the show I'm doing now. Where I was just like, look, I get it. I've been there. I'm going to just be totally honest with you. I'm not totally comfortable sharing all this stuff with the world. But like you reached out and you wanted to know like what I went through. So here it is just beat by beat. And I just like I, it was like eight in the morning. I had just woken up and gotten this message. And I spent like two hours just like turned off my Wi-Fi and was just like, here it is. I crashed a car. I, there's one thing I talk about in the show where I like cut my arm up and my roommates found me and like like they were like, how'd you get all those? And I lied. And then here's another thing. And here's another thing. But here's why I think it's all kind of like become funny in my mind now. Like I'll tell you about that story. I think about this and it makes me laugh and this story and that and it makes me laugh. And like, like the whole thing about the train that's in the show, I was like, there was this thing that happened to me once. And like, I don't say this in the show, but I said it to him. Like, I think, I think like that's one of the things you need to keep in mind that like you're depressed and when you're down, you're gonna feel it so much harder. But like sometimes you'll, like I had this thing with this train and it made me so happy. And I realized like I get to feel the good emotions bigger. And that's like the reward for having to feel the shitty ones harder. And I put it out there and uh, it went viral. Like all these people found it. And I really didn't mean for that to happen. There was no part of me that was like, this is a thing that'll like play. It was just like, <laughs> somebody sent me this thing last night and they sent it at like four in the morning, which was part of why I was like, oh, fuck. So it was like, I just wanted to, as soon as I could get it out there. And if I had a private email address, I would have sent it to that, but I didn't. And then it went around and then I became kind of known as like this depressed comedian and I really actually resisted making this show for a long time because I didn't want that label. You don't want to be the activist guy. No, I don't want to be an activist at all, at yeah. all. Like there's a lot of really good-hearted organizations in the world full of smart, competent people. I am not one of them. I'm not. So, But you me, can I'm, do your bit and move on. Exactly. That's fine. And that's, there is also a part of me, and if I'm being totally honest, that's like I want to do this show, take it as far as I can take it, and then that'll be my contribution to this world, and I can move on. Because it's been like three or four years of this where it's become like a defining thing of me and I want to move on. Like I, I feel like it'll be a big part of me and my health 
and my process of trying to see therapists and take medications and heal myself, I think being able to move on as an artist will be a sign that I've put that stuff to bed and can let it just be a part of my life and not my whole life. So hopefully doing this show will also just like blow it out so hard that no one really puts this on me ever again, you know? Well, there's two things I think about with that. Well, one, I did the show about my dad, I told you about, right? My yeah, dad yeah, was yeah. dying. We did the show. My dad was nearly James Bond. Hugely important part of my life. Turns my father's death into one of the great experiences of our lives. A lot of people got a lot out of it with father and son relationships. For a while, I felt exposed, but now I just look back as I've completely moved on from it. But I just look back with total fondness at the fact that we did it. Yeah. And people got something out of it. And that's what we do as artists. Yeah. You know, you create things and obviously you want other people to see it. Yeah. But I, but I've also been able to move on. I mean, it's different in that I'm not going to be moving on from my depression, but I've talked about my alcoholism. I don't move on from that, but at the yeah. same time, it doesn't define me. Yeah. So I think that's not going to be a problem for you either. I think it's hugely important that you do it. But I also think that when we're in Eddie Rockets and Irish girls recognize you, they're not going, <laughs> it's the depression guy. Yeah. They're going, it's the guy from Broad City. Yeah, which is, that has also been nice too, which is like, because I have, I have this kind of like double career where I'm like this underground dude who's made this talk show and I'm like this underground kind of champion. But then to the mainstream world, like I have parts on Broad City and I did a couple things on The Office and I'm like this very, very low level character actor that they see. And it's kind of been nice to have that other stuff happen because it takes, it makes me feel a little less pressure to be this guy who means something to people. You know, like I'm happy I mean something to people but that's also kind of responsibility. So it's nice to have some other stuff happening in my career, in my life, where it's I just get to go in, be on Broad City, be the sad sack boss, and then go home, and then people see it and they like it. Like that's real nice too. Yeah. Where it's not like I'm not like I'm gonna make this public access show and force it onto TV, and then people are like, you're like a punk rock comedian. Like where I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm really proud of that. But also that there's like you kind of like take on some a mantle of something there. Yeah, but it's nice to be able to be all these things. It's cool. It's cool. Some I'm really proud trapped. of it. I'm some people super get proud trapped of it. in their own identity. Yeah. As a performer. Yeah, big time. Big time. It's nice to have that freedom. Yeah. Big but there's time. also something wonderful about the fact that like often lazy journalists will say the tears of a clown is that a true cliche? Yeah, big and time. It's not, but on the flip side, you you, you fit that cliche quote unquote. I do. But also, I also think that laughter, in a way, being the antithesis to sadness. Yeah. There's something beautiful about the fact that you can chuck all the thing in a pot. Yeah, it's true. And it's, it's more powerful than a message, like an, an ad on the TV about I think the Samaritans. So. I think so, because it's also like when people are like, we really need to have a conversation about this. I feel like there's a lot of young people who are probably just like, no, we fucking don't about anything with that tone. But if I can make you laugh, like everybody likes comedy. Who doesn't like to laugh? So if I can make you laugh, then maybe it cracks open the door a little bit. Yeah, everybody just wants to fucking see themselves in something. Yeah. And you don't feel like a, a lunatic. Yeah, and it's tough too because it's like, I think of myself as a very not pretentious person. Like I identify with being from New Jersey in a very big way, and that is a very unpretentious place. So I fought hard against that with this show because I also feel like the show will actually hit hardest if it doesn't feel pretentious at all. If it mm. doesn't feel like... Here's my point. Here's my message. If it's just like, I'm this guy. I took it on the fucking chin. Here's some stories about how. Here's some stories about how I've dealt with it. 
And then here's some things about how I'm looking towards my future. Like if it can be that and totally unpretentious, I think it'll have the most effect possible. But I've had, I've had journalists like ask me exactly what you said of like, do you need to be sad to be funny? And they'll like bring up Robin Williams. And I'm like, it's really, I've gotten to the point where I say to them, like, actually, like, I don't think you have to be at all. And uh, most comedians I know aren't. The ones who are, I think it's like questions like that that make people romanticize it. And I think with the world, I think a lot of my friends would be healthier if we weren't always constantly trying to convince everybody that you have to be fucked up to be creative. I don't yeah. think it's true. Well, the, here's what I think is true. We're all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> and and one of the great things about your show is it reminds people that's not a big fucking deal. Yeah. Like it is in the sense that when it's dark, it's dark, but it's not a big deal that you had to go through that. It's just normal. Humor. Yeah. Big time. You know, my great grandfather killed himself in the fucking 20s. Yeah. You know, people have been going through this shit for a long time. Oh, we're yeah. We're just better at labeling it now. Big time. Big time. And we're better at like just letting it be cool. Like who cares? You know, who cares? So I wanted to ask you one or two other things before I let you go. Sure. Uh, I like the fact that you just said about being unpretentious because I always have, I feel like I have a personal conflict in that. Like when I go back to Queens, like I love Queens. Yeah. I hate when people fucking look down in it. I live in Queens now because it's Queens, the most we, Jersey-ish of the boroughs in my opinion. <laughs> but you know, you live in Jackson Heights. I know you were telling me and I I, I, I liked that you liked it. But I also, uh, you know, it, it, there's like a lot of people judge Queens. Yeah, and when I go back, I love the freedom of just being able to like not give a fuck about yes. what I sound like. But on the flip side, like a lot of my friends that I grew up with are like racist, like politically a little bit different to me. So <laughs> yeah. there's a conflict there. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I hate the restrictions of middle to like here they say middle class. I think in America you'd have to say upper middle class just yeah. in terms of what they mean by that. I hate the restrictions of that and the fact that you just can't be as free with what you say. Yeah. And, you know, like concerns about education or greater. You know, there's just there's just more pressure that I didn't grow up with. Uh, so how, how do you work out that? I don't just mean with the show being pretentious. Because you can that, feel it. This show, I would say, is the most pretentious thing I've ever done and hopefully that I'll ever do. But I've had to just kind of come to terms with that too of like, it's a little pretentious. If I want it to be as good as it can be, I just have to get over that and do it. But... Well, let me give you another example. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. How do you, because I struggle with this, how do you take those nights in Brooklyn full of people that are couldn't be a million miles away from the sort of upbringing type life we're talking about? Not that some of them didn't have it. Sure. But how do you go, those people often are looking at the people we're talking about as like a punchline. Yeah. You know, the racist guy in the joke or like... And how do you not go, yeah, but there's things about you that are just as fucked up. Like, you yeah. know, there's, there's more to understand than just the simplicity of this is racist, ignorant guy and you're enlightened, you know, upper middle class person whose parents yeah. pay your rent. You know, do you ever, because I don't know how, I'm actually asking you, do you ever try to work that out? Or Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough thing for me too. Because it's also this weird thing where it's like, great, like the artsy Brooklyn kids love me. And that's cool. I don't look down on that. But I also am like... I don't identify as one of them. Like I don't, nothing about my material is particularly artsy. I go up, I tell stories, mm. I'm who I am. And that's that. And if they like it, I think maybe, maybe I, there, there, there are times, there are times where I feel like people come up to me and they're like, oh, I grew up in a tough place too. Or like I grew up around that same time. I remember that. And that's cool where I'm like, oh, you're the other ones who come from there. And then there's other times where I feel like some of these people who are maybe trust fundy look at me a little bit as Judging. like, oh, or like you're almost like this like specimen, like you're this, 
you're this guy. Fucking bridge and tunnel. Yeah, exactly. I fucking you're, hate those. You're the Three bridge words. and tunneler. You know, like I hate bridge and tunnel. Where I feel a little bit like a like a dancing monkey, like a sideshow. You know what I like mean? Like it's classism. Because obviously I Big hate time. racism. But the people that seem to hate racism the most in terms of that artsy world, they fucking love classism. Oh, they look down they their nose the at everybody. They love the bridge and tunnel. They I do. Mean, they I do. Hate that word. And it is, yeah. Because I'll tell you too. I go back to Jersey and I'm around my friends, and just like you, some of these guys I went to high school with. There's a couple guys I'm still in touch with racist they don't say cool shit and i roll my eyes at it and they'll say it in front of me and then they'll be like well, i know you're not okay i know yeah i know you you i know you're the touchy feeling exactly guys. exactly <laughs> exactly i get the same thing and i hate it but there's also a part of me that's like i know this is bad to say there's a part of me that's like they're real they're real they're wrong but they're real i'm not saying it's right but there's something honorable about it they're not hiding it whereas like some of the people we're talking about where it's like you're a trust fund kid you're looking down your nose at people from long island and jersey and staten island and i'm imagining i'm piecing together the dots probably went to a private school probably wasn't a very diverse place it's great that you're leading the charge and trying to like stand up and be vocal about social justice stuff. It truly is great. It'll make the world a better place if everybody listens. That being said, there's a world where you can meet in the middle because the racist friends from Jersey I have are never going to listen to the opinions of the people who hang out at the fucking MoMA and hold it over their heads. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is no, it, it's an interesting... I, I just... I could tell that maybe you were aware of the conflict too. And say, it's a it conflict is. That same I have. thing. Some of the only people I'm still in touch with from high school, I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine. See him a few times a year still. Great guy, but shit will come out of his mouth where I'm like, bro. I know. You got to get same. over that. And you have I, kids. You have two kids now. You can't pass this on to them. You know it's fucked up. And then there's also... I bet you have the same thing too with some of the Queens guys you grew up with where they're like... It's funny, whatever. And you're like, it's not. Like, it's... Eh. You can use this in your show. You probably can't say... You <laughs> exactly. probably can't say this, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you get that same I get thing. All the, I, guess you're, I guess in your line of work, you're not allowed to say this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I get all that. I, I, just, I just find that conflict interesting. It is tough because it's like, how do you... How do guys like you and me identify with where, where, com, where, com, where we come from and be truly, truly proud of it, but also know that there's real shit that just the world needs to leave behind that is surviving there and thriving there. It's tough. It's a but conflict. they have conflicts too because they're totally good people. They don't act out in this hate, but that, that hate is in there. That judgment yeah, is in there. Yeah, it hasn't been pounded out yet. Yeah, Their kids it, will be the generation that has to tell them. Yeah. But here's the big question that, that I have for you. Racism saved you. <laughs> but, yeah. But I don't want to give that away because yeah. it's such a great moment it's in true. the show. But, and it is. It's North Jersey racism <laughs> did save me. But here's the big question that I think about sometimes that I think will make you laugh too. It's like, so like if the shit goes down and the world falls apart, who do you team up with? Like who do you, which crowd do you roll with? Your new, the new world you live in or do you, or the Queens guys? Oh yeah. If I want to survive, I roll with the Jersey guys. You're rolling with the Jersey guys? That's the walking deads. You're going with the Shanes. It's, if it's walking dead, <laughs> if it's walking dead, I'm heading to Jersey, right? Yeah. Well, I'm heading there anyway because it's just like a weird thing where you just head for home. Yeah. You know, but I'm not hanging with the Brooklyn. If I'm at a show in Brooklyn and we hear that the zombies are coming, I'm leaving all of none of them even get to come with me. So I'm going to Jersey because those people will be alive at the end of that. Definitely.
Yeah. The Brooklyn I mean, people I thought that movie like, went while we're young. Is it while we're young? That that Ben Stiller movie. I didn't see that one. Uh, people were were were. Not everyone loved it. I loved it, and I thought it tackled that whole thing about the Brooklyn crowd well. So if you see that movie, then you go, yeah, I'm definitely not heading to Brooklyn because you feel like I feel like I can trust them less. Yeah. But that's a judgment on them, which is not fair. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not even a real group of people. They're in a, they're a, you know, it's a hypothetical that we're talking about yeah. anyway, but I yeah. trust them less. But that's just because I didn't grow up with them. So the last Queens thing I want to ask you is I don't even know it's true because I just saw it quickly on Wikipedia. What did you do about Daryl Strawberry? Oh, you'd love this. This was actually my brother. Because I'm, I'm a, like, the Mets mean more to me than just being a Met fan. Because yeah. it was the one thing I was able to hold on to for all my years in Ireland that said I'm still a kid from Flushing. Yeah. So you'll enjoy this. And my grandmother, the daughter of this guy that killed himself, yeah, was an insane Met fan. Wow. So much so that we used to go to Mineola Pool Club in Long Island. That was like our place that we hung out during the summers. And she had a nail on a tree. That she sat next to. And the nail was for her to hang the transistor radio to listen to the Mets. Nice. In the 80s. That's so awesome. So the Mets are a big part of our family. So then I saw out of nowhere, you did a thing about Daryl Strawberry. Yeah. You, you, you will do, this will make us, us long-term friends, I think. <laughs> so this started with my brother. When my brother was in college, he went to a school in Philly. And there were these kids who were running like a coffee house open mic. But it was for like poetry and people playing acoustic guitars and shit. And he thought it was the most pretentious shit in the world. So he found a copy of Daryl Strawberry's autobiography and he'd go to this thing and he'd get up and just start reading from Daryl Strawberry's autobiography until they forced him off the stage. And he told me that and I thought that was the funniest thing in the entire world. And he said, he's like, you got to read this book because it's like the most melodramatic. Whoever his ghostwriter is that wrote it with him, it's like so melodramatic. On the first line, I'll never forget the first line of this book was, what if you had not one, but two life stories and in between them, was a roller coaster ride. Like his whole autobiography <laughs> is written in this tone. So I asked my brother, I was like, do you mind, like, will you give me that idea? Can we work on something together? I wanna like make it a full on show. I was already at UCB at that point. I was like, I wanna take that and like build a one man show. Will you help me build it? So he gave me like all these bits that he had done and I filled it out and we did this show where the premise was that Daryl Strawberry was staging a one man show that was in the vein of like a really hacky, touchy-feely melodramatic one-man show but the bit was that every week he couldn't make it and i was his understudy so i'd have to wander <laughs> on because it read that you were daryl so i was wondering yeah. how that was so the whole bit was that like it, that he got in a car accident on the way to the show and couldn't make it so i had to wander out and like look like me and then give this dramatic story of daryl strawberry's life and it was all like it was cool because it would be like a lot of stuff that was like the really insane stuff that he's got done like all the stuff with him and doc and him and Dykstra and like like all those guys just being like roughhousers. But then yeah. I'd mix it where I'd just blow it out and say all this insane stuff. Like I had a story about him like punching a police horse in Reno, Nevada and knocking it unconscious. You made it up. Totally made up. And then people wouldn't know what was real and what wasn't. And then it started like spreading around. And then all these Mets fans were coming to the show and getting mad because they thought it was really Daryl. And then it culminated somebody found this thing where you could win an auction to have Daryl Strawberry appear at your school. And I was working at the time at the UCB's improv school. And I was like, well, we have a school. And I put in a bid and I won the auction. Oh my God. And he came and he gave a talk for all of us. And he got there and realized that we were all grownups. And he was like, what's going on? Because I'm sure he's used to teaching, doing these things at like junior high schools. Yeah. And we were like, oh, it's actually like an acting school. And he was like, this is weird. And we were like, yeah, we thought it was kind of like 
funny to enter and we actually won and he just like let down his guard started telling us the real stories and it was so awesome and he was, was so cool and he charming seems cool, yeah. he's so cool and charming and he was like telling us about like drugs he did and threesomes he had and he still was like i'm telling you all this not to brag about it but to tell you do not get caught up in your own shit and he actually took this beautiful turn where he was like look you guys are all trying to be actors like you all have a chance to fall into the same life i lived where like there's gonna be drugs put in front of you there's gonna be money to burn there's gonna be girls throwing themselves at you so he's like all bullshit aside about how funny it was to bring me here like there's a lot to take away if you guys are successful you'll be in the same life i was so like yeah i'll tell you the funny stories but keep in mind I fucked up. It was super cool. Wow. It was really cool, yeah. And now Jedi Patel made a documentary about him and Dwight. I know. I haven't seen it yet. I saw it. It's My good. My brother watched it. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's good. What did your brother say? He, he loved was, it. Man. Yeah, I loved it. I'll also say this. Daryl seems like he's really put his demons to bed. Doc? Not so much. Right, yeah. And they well, Daryl definitely shows up to things a lot more. Yeah, and they, they, they have them sitting. You'll love it, too, because it'll remind you of home. The way they interview them, I don't know if your brother told you, it's just the two of them sitting in this diner in Queens. And it's like an old school, like Kew Gardens, diner, diner, like metal exterior. They're just oh. sitting there and they give it to each other. It's cool. Oh, I got to watch it. So they like talk about, you remember that whole story about how like Daryl ratted out Doc? Did you ever hear that one? No. There's like a pretty infamous story that like the Mets were trying to figure out who was bringing all this Coke into the clubhouse and Daryl was like, it wasn't me like wasn't me and just kind of like threw doc under the bus and they confront each other it's good it's good it's good oh, I gotta, I gotta they, watch it's it. like they're not holding back it's good yeah well that team is so infamous oh have you read the bad guys one the book no dude there's a book just about that team and that season called the bad guys one and it just breaks down how they were like legit terrible human beings just awful men and how they just became heroes in New York and just lived. And they're still my heroes. Yeah, but you Keith know. Anderson, Keith Hernandez could be the most intolerant, bigoted, ignorant bastard. <laughs> and I will hang on his every word. And they all still get in Like, Remember that footage? Have you seen that footage of Wally Backman flipping out when he's, he's managing in the minor leagues? Yeah, he's still managing there. Yeah, there's footage of him where he's like throwing chairs on the field, trying to fight everybody. <laughs> they're the best. Those Mets were the best. But mm. people don't realize growing up because... I was born in 1980. I was six years old. They were like superheroes to us. They were on the front page of the paper every day. Dude, we had Mets Day. We had Mets Day in St. Kevin's you where you were allowed to come in a Mets uniform. And it was it every kid? Every kid. Yankee fans can go fuck themselves. Yeah. And there was Yankee fans. Like yeah, Shannon I grew Doherty. up a Yankee fan Shannon Doherty was a Yankee fan and she had to come in on Mets Day, but she always wore a Yankee shirt because her dad was a cop. Yeah. He wasn't having any of yeah. that shit. What did John Gotti's kid wear? No, that was St. Francis Prep. That was later on. Okay. That was later on. That's got to be terrifying when you realize he's involved in bullying you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess they were giving money to the school because uh, when my mother finally made a call... My dad called somebody. I don't know who he called, but my dad was the manager of Burberry. So I think, I think there was a lot of those guys liked shopping in Burberry. So my dad called somebody and said, there shouldn't be a problem anymore. But then my mother called the school and I, I guess they must have got a lot of money because the school were just like not having any of it. So anyway, it was sorted out in a very sort of like not confrontational way. They called me and the original kid, not, not John yeah. Gotti's son. Yeah. They called me and the original kid into the school, into, into the dean's office. And said, is this going on? And of course, I didn't rat out the kid. Yeah. Right? 
So yeah. then, of course, we walked out, and that was the end of it because I didn't throw him under the bus. Right, right, So right. that's how it ended. But that's yeah. a very Queen's way of ending very a bullying Queens. situation. It's very like, Queen's. All right, you did me a solid. All right, we'll, we'll squash the beef. Yeah, But I very later Queens. found out that the girl I was going out with had problems with that kid. I went to Ireland. Yeah, because you came over when you were 14, right? Yeah. Wow. She the, the, he, she had problems with that kid for, for a long, long time. But I, I've talked about it quite a bit, so I, I fear if I talk about it too much, people assume yeah, it's like yeah, some yeah. obsession I won't, I'm now just trying to force it out of you The problem is it's just a great name to drop. That's the yeah. problem. It's a yeah. great name to drop yeah. in a story. And Gotti's grandson just got arrested for cocaine possession, I noticed in the paper yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're all still in Howard Beach. But uh, anyway, man, listen, it was great talking to you. Likewise, I'm, I'm so delighted. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah, great, great meeting you. Glad you enjoyed that. Oh, actually, I should ask you this because most Irish listeners. Yeah. Like, what was your uh, what was your highlight of Dublin other than your shows? Let's see. Good. I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. No, and I had a really great time. I will say this. Like, I, I got my plane got in super early. So I got to my hotel a little after five in the morning. And uh, the room wasn't ready room wasn't ready so i just walked around in an empty dublin at like 5 30 in the morning and that was really cool to see it that way the first time it's and then, like um the beginning of 28 days later yeah a little bit a little bit but it was like beautiful and it, i will say this about dublin is that you know as someone whose grandparents came from ireland that was my first time ever going you kind of have this vision in your head of what ireland is and then you get to dublin and walk around and realize like oh it's actually not that far off like the streets are narrow and these there are pubs everywhere and like it's the buildings are everything's like older so it's not skyscrapers it's like small build. you're like oh it like really feels like what you wanted it to be and walking around in the morning that was really that was pretty cool that was a cool way to see it for the first time because once the festival started a lot of it revolved around that sure and that's not real tents in no. a park <laughs> i also will say too i went a cool thing, I, I was in my hotel room and, and uh, Maeve Higgins, who I'm, I know from Brooklyn, nine in the morning, my phone rings and it's Maeve going, get out of my country. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and she was like, I'm actually going to a church with my parents and they have St. Valentine's bones. Do you want to come see it? Oh, yeah, that's right. And I was like, this is cool to like hang out with someone who grew up here and their parents. Like, you can't say no to that. That's disrespectful, you know. So we went to that church and I got to like hang out with Maeve's parents and that was pretty rad. And, uh, but it was so funny cause one of the saints, St. Jude, I think is like the saint of hardship and they leave a book out in this church where people can leave messages and they're all brutal. Can you save my cousin from addiction? Can you make sure you find me a home? Like there's really hard up people there. And Maeve was like, make sure you look at the last entry. And she put in the book, she said, uh, dear St. Jude, can you please help Chris Gethard? He's a total loser. He doesn't get it. I don't know why he keeps trying intervene immediately <laughs> sincerely Maeve and I was like oh that made me laugh so hard man uh, did that make me laugh hard and uh, it was cool it was like cool going to that church that shows Maeve's lack of respect oh. for institutions that she would use the book to St. Jude what a good bit though what a good bit <laughs> that was great yeah oh well that's good that's a very Irish moment it was it was that's a very Irish and her parents were so nice and her dad renovated Michael Flatley's mansion in Cork I didn't hear that story. Yeah, he's an accomplished man in his own right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And the church that they sometimes live in, in Kilmainham. Really? Yeah. Incredible I didn't know dude. any of this. Yeah. Cool Sup family. Super cool. They yeah. were nice to me. Oh, you got good friends. Anyway, thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. So, thanks to Chris. Great chat. Um, you can see his show, Career Suicide. 
at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival until the end of August. He's at the Pleasance Dome, I believe at 10.30, possibly 10. Let's say 10, just in case I don't want you to show up late. Get your tickets fast. They're selling out. Some great reviews. Uh, my show also sold out last night. Uh, get your tickets fast. It's on at 8 o'clock in the Pleasance Dome. Uh, thanks to those who went to see Nazim after listening to the podcast. They're surprised uh, the amount of feedback we got off that. So that was fantastic. Uh, and uh, please subscribe. Spread the word. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, subscribe on SoundCloud. Subscribe wherever you're listening to Stitcher. But uh, do subscribe and do spread the word. My Twitter is at DesBishop. My Snapchat is DesBuffer. My Instagram is DesBishop. Uh, my Facebook is Facebook.com forward slash DesBishop. Please keep getting the word out there. I see we're doing okay in the charts, which is nice. And uh, I will post uh, the other part of that chat with Chris at a later stage. Uh, I might mix it with, with another interview, possibly... Uh, maybe a bullying episode uh, just about, you know, the, the adolescence and, and how difficult it is. Uh, but, I you know, I'll do that in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm now uh, recording an In the Car episode with Jason Byrne tonight. So look out for that. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. I'm really enjoying doing the podcasting and you have been great so far as an audience. Plenty of feedback. Tweet me, Facebook me, email me, uh, DesBishopHits at gmail.com, desbishophits at gmail.com. Any feedback will be greatly appreciated. We'll see you on Thursday for Jason Byrne. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.